Welcome, one and all, to Cineversary, a podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Every month, we extend happy birthday wishes to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee. We count that as anything from a 20th all the way up to a 100th anniversary. This, as ever, is your devoted host, Eric Martin, creator of the Cineverse blog and moderator of the weekly Cineverse film discussion group. And if you've just found our show, welcome. If you're a regular listener, we are thrilled that you've come back. When we think of world cinema and the many unimpeachable classics from around the planet that have been released in the 20th century, it's hard to select a single favorite worthy of the crown best ever made. But if you consult film critics and scholars, a handful of titles rise to that description. One worthy resource to help gauge the grade, ranking, and merits of a masterwork is the British Film Institute's Sight and Sound Poll, which asks critics to nominate their picks for the greatest films of all time, the results of which are released every decade. Now, for many decades, Citizen Kane dominated the top of that list, most recently replaced by Jean Dielman and Vertigo. But a film from Japan has proven a strong contender over several decades, consistently placing in the top five and, in 2022, grabbing the number four slot. And when directors were surveyed by Sight and Sound in 2012, this work came in number one on their separate list. We are talking, of course, about Tokyo Story, released in 1953 and directed by Yasujiro Ozu, a movie that continues to impress and inspire viewers, filmmakers, reviewers, researchers, and academians alike with its moving narrative, emotional resonance, and cinematic craftsmanship. This month, we commemorate Tokyo Story reaching that seven-decade milestone, and we have the ideal guest to partake in this celebration. We'll be joined by David Desser, Emeritus Professor of Cinema Studies at the University of Illinois and one of the world's foremost experts on Asian cinema. If you own the Criterion Collection edition of Tokyo Story, in fact, David provides the wonderfully informative audio commentary that accompanies the disc. David and I will explore why and how Tokyo Story remains a masterwork, its prominent themes, Ozu's unique style, and much, much more. So, where do you start with a crown jewel like Tokyo Story? Well, how about we learn more about the inspirations and circumstances behind how this film got made, when, why, by whom, its reception, and its legacy 70 years onward, with a little help from our friends at Wikipedia. Tokyo Story is a 1953 Japanese drama film directed by Yasujiro Ozu and starring Shishu Ryu and Chiko Higashiyama about an aging couple who travel to Tokyo to visit their grown children. But upon their arrival, they discover that their busy offspring are preoccupied with their own lives, leading to a poignant exploration of family dynamics, generational gaps, and the changing fabric of Japanese society. Tokyo Story was inspired by the 1937 American film Make Way for Tomorrow, which was directed by Leo McCary, which Tokyo Story loosely adapts to a Japanese context and Ozu's distinctive style. The script was developed by Ozu and collaborator Kogo Noda, who with cinematographer Yuharu Atsuda scouted locations in Tokyo and Onomichi for another month before shooting started. 
Principal photography and editing took place from July to October 1953. Ozu used the same film crew and actors he had worked with for many years. Like all of Ozu's sound films, Tokyo Story's pacing is slow, although Ozu called it his film, quote, that tends most strongly to melodrama, unquote. In his narrative storytelling, Ozu often had certain key scenes take place off camera, with the viewer only learning about them through the character's dialogue. Tokyo Story was first released on November 3, 1953 in Japan. It is Ozu's best-known film in both the West and the East. After the success of Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon at the 1951 Venice Film Festival, Japanese films began getting international distribution. The bad news is that Japanese film exporters considered Ozu's work, quote, too Japanese, unquote, and unmarketable. It was not until the 1960s that Ozu's films began to be screened in New York City at film festivals, museums, and theaters, and it wasn't until the 1970s that it began to be more widely discovered and appreciated by American critics and scholars. Today, Tokyo Story earns a perfect 100% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, where its average critical score is an incredible 9.6 out of 10, and it also garners a flawless 100 Metascore on Metacritic. Now, before I introduce my co-pilot this month, a quick reminder. We will be taking a spoiler-tastic scenic route through this film, so it is in your best interest to screen Tokyo Story right now, if you haven't already, before proceeding forward with us. Everybody get the memo? Great, it's time to introduce our guest, but a quick heads up that the audio on this interview, it's a tad choppy from time to time due to some microphone issues, but it shouldn't detract from your enjoyment and understanding of our conversation. So without further ado... Let's give it up for David Desser. Let's give a warm welcome to David Desser, Emeritus Professor of Cinema Studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He was the co-editor of the Journal of Japanese and Korean Cinema, and one of the world's foremost experts on Asian cinema for that matter, including the films of Yasujiro Ozu, as evidenced by his outstanding commentary track on the Criterion Collection edition of Tokyo Story. Hello, David. How are you today? Just fine, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. It's such a treat to be able to talk to you today, and I can't think of a better guest for this particular installment where we are celebrating the 70th anniversary of Tokyo Story. So the record show, I guess it was released uh, early November 1953. That would put us in the anniversary month. So my first question to you is how and when did you initially discover Tokyo Story, and what was your initial reaction? Can you recall? Actually, I cannot Okay. I would assume that I saw it in a film class uh, when I got my degree at the USC. So I would have, I think it was probably around probably 77, 78. Uh, interestingly, I can remember the first time I saw an Ozu movie. Hmm. And that was in 1975 when the public broadcasting service uh, did something on Japanese cinema hosted by former ambassador to Japan, Edwin O. Reischauer. Okay. And he showed a number of, a number of uh, well, what were fairly famous Japanese films, but not to me, uh, except for Kurosawa, <laughs> whom I had seen before. Mm -hmm. uh, but I remember seeing Early Summer as my first Ozu film. Uh, and that's interesting because it's the middle film of mm -hmm. a so-called Noriko trilogy of late spring, early summer, and Tokyo Story. And why is it called a trilogy? What is it that links these three films? All three films star Setsuko Hara as a character named Noriko. Hmm. And in each film, she co-stars with Chishu Ryu, who plays the father-in-law 
in Tokyo Story. Uh, in late spring, he plays her father. In early summer, he plays her brother. Uh, and in Tokyo Story, he plays her father-in-law. <laughs> so it's typical wow. of Ozu to do that. But just so I'm clear, it sounds like this is a uh, unique story. It's not continued or picked up the story thread in any other Ozu film. Is that fair to say? It's, it has similarities, of course, but no. Uh, it's just called the Noriko Trilogy as yeah. a way probably to distinguish his m- maybe uh, films that are considered his three best, mm. which I actually do. I consider that so-called trilogy his three best, although I'd say Ozu has about a dozen films that are absolutely fantastic. While we're on that topic, real quick, so what is uh, the top of the heap for you, Ozu-wise? Is it this film, or would you pick a different one? No, I would pick Late Spring, uh, the film where Setsuko Hara is the daughter and Chishuyu mm. is her father, uh, and he needs to basically convince her and in some sense trick her in getting married it's a very poignant film mm-hmm. the father-daughter relationship is very close and very interesting and it's kind of mirrored in the father-in-law daughter-in-law relationship in tokyo story where of course he tells her that it's fine if she remarries and etc so there's a lot of similarities in the relationship and everyone who you know likes tokyo story knows the film also believes that the relationship between Chishuryu and Setsuko Hara is really the emotional mm. core of the film. Where Tokyo Story, it's kind of ironic because she's the only one of the youngsters who's not really related to him. That's right. She's only the daughter-in-law. That's an interesting choice, though. And I have to plead ignorance, uh, in all fairness. I've not seen any other Ozu works. I'm, of course, intrigued. So these are major blind spots for me. But that's, uh, again, part of the reason I asked the question is I want some other recommendations. So now I know where to turn next. And I certainly will check out that trilogy. But yeah, it's interesting because most people would say this is this is likely his most cherished work just by virtue of uh, it's the one that the media uh, probably mentions the most. It uh, has been voted by critics and directors as the fourth best film ever, according to the Sight and Sound poll, the most recent version. And it's been listed on the on that list several times over the decades too, but uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to hear uh, in, in in your case being an Ozu expert, it's not necessarily uh, your your personal favorite, but it's it's close up there, I would assume. Oh yeah, no, it's a great mm-hmm. film. I love it, and it's very very moving. There's just something about late spring, early summer. There's some others mm-hmm. that, that I like as well. But, you know, if you had to pick just one, but there's no reason you have to pick just one because <laughs> they're all available. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's a, it's a desert island question, right? Yeah. So let's get into it here. Why and how does Tokyo Story remain one of the finest films ever made? Why is it worth celebrating 70 years later? Uh, it's, it's, it's its subtle brilliance on the one hand. Uh, and it's deeply emotional impact, mm. which it very, 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 very subtly. Uh, and the reason I think that critics and, and many people like it the most of Ozu's film is that in some ways more happens in this film than in others. You have the way in which the uh, youngsters are pretty mean to the parents. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, you have the death of, of the old woman. So there's a lot of there's a lot going on. So I think people can appreciate that in terms of their use to most movies in which something actually happens. Sure. Ozu called this film his most melodramatic. Most people wouldn't say it's melodramatic, but they would say certainly uh, things happen. But it's just so it's just so rich. And I also think it's very surprising if you've never seen Ozu, this is as good a place to start as any. Okay. And and I think you'd be surprised at how effective it is with its deceptive simplicity. 
Yes. You know, and it's just it's just a really moving film mm-hmm. even though you know the only thing that does happen is the death of the of the old mother but in some other ozu movies quite literally nothing happens right it's interesting you say that like some people ozu is going to be a harder sell because plot is just a major backseat element it's, it's not important and there isn't much that happens so to speak if you were to kind of describe the narrative to somebody but that being said there is so much emotionally that happens that's what's fascinating to me and it sounds like to you too yes it's so it's so interesting that the parents go to tokyo you know wanting to see their children and the, the son the daughter are, are pretty pretty cool to them you know, in some sense, pretty mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're disappointed. And their disappointment is palpable. Uh, I think that in some ways, Ozu, you know, maybe is appreciated by people who are a little more mature. I'm not going to recommend it necessarily to most, say, teenagers or even 20-somethings. But all you have to do is be reasonably sensitive and pay attention and appreciate and, you know, you can even take the side of the youngsters. The youngsters have their, young, I call them youngsters, of course. They're, they're, grown, they're grown people. They're in their 30s and 40s even. You can take their side too and say, yeah, you know, they have their own lives and the, their parents come and they try their best. But the, their parents are just not <laughs> what they have in mind uh, for this moment. And if, for Ozu, it's not that he necessarily condemns anybody. Mm-hmm. I think his point really is that it's inevitable. Children grow up and they get estranged. He makes the estrangement quite literal. The geography of the film is is important. The kids are in Tokyo, obviously, but the parents are are literally on the other side of the country. Yeah, that's interesting geographically. Like, again, I'm going to plead ignorance. I don't know the geography of Japan. So in the early 50s, for example, how long of a train ride would this be for the older couple to see their kids? Yeah, it would it would take hours and hours. It's an overnight uh, train trip. No, they even have to change. Yeah, okay, that's right. Mm-hmm. So they have to go south to Osaka, and then they have to go east. Because nowadays they have the Great Bullet Train, but in those mm-hmm. days it was a locomotive train. It would have taken hours and hours, uh, and you know that's why they all thought they would never. You might say, ah, oh, it's you know Japan is not that big, and you might say, why why do they imagine they never see each other again? It's not that hard necessarily to get yeah. from Onomichi, which is a small fishing town. Uh, but they know that the travel is difficult, but also that life is going to move on. Yes. Life is inevitably going to change. Even someone who's nice, they yeah. move on. I ask these questions because I know it sounds like trivial practical matters, like how long of it would the train trip be, etc. But it, it factors into the story, if you think about it, because, uh, yeah, I mean, it takes its toll on the mother. Ultimately, she ends up in a coma, she gets sick, she dies, and the train trip going home likely contributed to that. And that's why I ask, I assume trains were the mass transit of the time. People didn't have uh, their own automobiles in a lot of cases. I assume plane travel was virtually non-existent for commuter travelers. Is that fair to say? Uh, yes, uh, 1953 there were uh, probably only a couple of airports. I don't think it would have occurred to old people born in the teens and 20s to fly. Right. Remember, what Ozu does always is he makes his films kind of documentaries of the moment. In 1953, they have to go south to Osaka, where they change. And then they take a overnight hours and hours to get to, get to Tokyo. 
as you say correctly, it would have it did take its toll on the old woman. But of course, Ozu does a little bit of the old Hollywood gun in the drawer, which is to say that he foreshadows the old woman's sickness and eventual death. And he does it twice. The first time is when she's kind of musing to her grandson. And mm-hmm. she says, oh, I wonder if I'll be around when <clears throat> you get older. And now, you know, the people looked older in those days. They're really only in their 60s. So for me, <laughs> they're not very old. <laughs> I can't speak for Japan, but the average life expectancy in Western nations wasn't that high back then either. No, that's right. Uh, that, that's exactly right. But the, the other foreshadowing, though, is when they go, when they're in uh, Atami, which is a, a hot mm. spring, easily accessible from Tokyo even in those days, uh, where they're on the seawall. Uh, and she stands up and then she gets dizzy. Right. Yeah. And that's that's kind of the moment. As they say, when you get very specific, you also get very universal. Everybody has a family of one kind or another. Youngsters can appreciate, uh, you know, how they have their own life and let them live their own life. And as you get older, of course, uh, you appreciate the uh, inevitability of change. And that's what I think the film is about. A lot of people say, oh, it's the destruction of the Japanese family uh, by industrialization and how Tokyo has changed and you get more atomized and you went from a multi-generation household to a uh, nuclear family. But I don't actually agree with that. I mean, a little bit's there, but I actually believe that the film is about the inevitability of change. Yeah, we will certainly talk more about this when we get into the uh, issue of themes, but I'm glad you brought it up because it factors into, it kind of overshadows the entire proceeding here and and, and helping us better understand where Ozu is going here. So I certainly want to dovetail back to this thought in just a little bit when we talk about themes. So yeah, as far as why it remains one of the finest movies ever made, uh, as you were saying, I think that it has some evergreen messages, right, David? Yes. I mean, it has some time-tested explorations of things like the generational gap, the inevitability of change, as you said, complicated family dynamics, sociocultural changes that are inevitable as time passes, you know, the old being replaced by the new, often irreverently. Thematically, this film is uh, chock full of really interesting messages and takeaways, But the social commentary, for me anyway, it remains relevant seven decades onward. Tell me if you disagree. But uh, even to those who aren't Japanese or who lived through the immediate years following World War II, it's still relevant. Let's say you're an aging parent or you're an adult child with a mom and dad in their senior years. Or perhaps you belong to a large family or you have grandchildren or you've lost one of your adult children or you live relatively far from your offspring Or for that matter, David, if you're a human being with a pulse who finds (laughs) interpersonal relationships fascinating, then Tokyo's story translates universal truths that will forever speak to you. I'm convinced of that. This is a movie that it doesn't matter. You don't have to be immersed in Japanese culture to appreciate it. I think Ozu does a great job of universalizing the story and the characters. And it also persists as one of the very best movies ever because of its exemplary craftsmanship. He's not afraid to break the rules, right? The rules of conventional film grammar and established cinematic techniques. And he opts for, as you were saying, you know, simplicity and realism with his camera and his editing over things like attention-garnering visual flourishes. He's not a flashy filmmaker, although he has his unique style, right? So what is it about Ozu's style that, that listeners should really understand a little bit better to understand where he's coming from and to better 
better appreciate when they revisit Tokyo Story or his other works? Well, he does a lot of things that I think can be enjoyed regardless of the story. It's almost as if has a story that can be told in any way. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can tell Tokyo's story in a lot of different ways. And in some ways, people have remade it, or it, it's based on things that he utilized, aspects of some Hollywood story. Let me ask you, that while we're on that, real quickly, is this a loose remake of Make Way for Tomorrow? It's a very loose remake uh, of Make Way for Tomorrow. Yes. Yeah, the 1937 Leo McCary film that uh, hit on a lot of the similar story beats. It's Go so ahead. funny because what he takes from there is a kind of set piece that's in the, maybe two-thirds of the way through the film where the mother and the father are separated by having to stay with two different people. So the second time the mother and father go to visit their daughter-in-law, only the mother can stay with the daughter-in-law and the father has to stay with somebody else the old guy with whom he gets drunk mm -hmm. uh, and then show up at the daughter's home the one who has the uh, beauty parlor the beauty salon <laughs> the ooh-la-la beauty salon right, right. what a name <laughs> ooh -la -la. yes uh and then it's a great moment because the daughter in a certain way rejects them because she has guests and she says oh these are old friends because she, she's embarrassed. That's a, that's a very interesting moment. Yeah. But that being separated is what he takes from Make Way for Tomorrow, in which the old couple can no longer live together. But they have to go live separately. Whereas for Ozo, they don't go live separately. They just are separated. It is, of course, about getting old and the generation gap. And Ozo, sure. Ozo was a huge fan of Hollywood movies. I mean, he, knew, he knew what he was doing. Uh, and he knew what he wasn't doing. So in terms of his style, he does things that I think a lot of casual film goer, film goers and film viewers really won't care about. Uh, and what's interesting is they might not even notice, even though it's wrong in some ways. I, I enjoy watching those with style. For me, I can turn off the sound uh, and just watch the characters flip all over the frame. Uh, when somebody stands up from the front, he'll cut to have them standing up from the back. So in other words, the camera will be pointing at them and then over to cut, the camera will be pointing away from them. Yeah. I mean, what you're talking about is spatial relationships in, in relation to what's called the 180 degree rule, exactly. which says that you have to stay, the camera has to stay on one axis or one side of that invisible rule. Otherwise, the viewer can get you know disoriented as to, wait a minute, they were facing that way, now they're facing the other way. Yes. So why does he break that rule so often? What's the point of that? I'm just curious. Is he just doing it because he can or he doesn't care about the rule? Or is there something more at, at, at work here? Well, he does it because he can, but also he, he does it in some ways to anticipate the next shot. Uh, so, for instance, in the opening scene, you have the father sitting on the right and the mother sitting on the left. Mm -hmm. He cuts to the other side where now the father's sitting on the left and the mother sitting on the right. But what you notice is the camera is then looking across them to a different view so that something else can happen in that shot. So somebody actually enters the frame and talks to them. Instead of cutting to that person entering the frame and talking to them, he lets the two couple he lets the couple sit there in the wrong orientation but now we see that someone enters the frame 
and talks to them. Mm-hmm. So you get a three shot instead of a one shot. Yeah. So it sounds like I mean he's not just doing it arbitrarily or just just because he can necessarily. He's he, there's a there's a method to this madness, if you will, in a lot of these choices. There is. It's just you know so that when someone stands up uh, from the front and then he takes them from the back, then he'll let them walk out uh, of the room from there. Mm-hmm. But it is it is something that he does sometimes arbitrarily where there isn't any necessary reason. Uh, but he does it, and then yeah. get used to it. It's 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 in some ways not a big deal, but in other ways it's fun. Right, like purists or, or uh, you know old fashioned Hollywood directors of the time might have looked at an Ozu film and what is he doing here? <laughs> but it does. It sounds like most viewers just get acclimated to it relatively quickly. I think that a lot of people don't even notice it. Interestingly, or they you know once in a while it may be a jump, but you know in in a modern in a modern film goer they should probably be used to it. Because they've seen all those crazy French New Wave movies where they jump all over the place. <laughs> That's right. So Otho is very calm compared to Godard to or, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he may not do the invisible editing that we, we know associated with the golden era of Hollywood, but he's not. Necess- he's also not doing like radical jump cuts and no. flashier techniques. But it, one of his famous uh, approaches also is the tatami shot, which means uh, kind of a lower camera angle yes. with, with the camera anchored maybe three feet or so from the ground and that is a height amenable to ideally framing subjects sitting or kneeling on a a japanese tatami mat right that is a very famous hallmark of ozu it is but what's interesting is that when people stand up he won't cut so that you'll have somebody tall in the frame Mm -hmm. and somebody still sitting Uh, and when people stand up he never pans up he doesn't track with them inside. He doesn't. He doesn't like to pan. He doesn't like to tilt. In fact, he doesn't really like to move the camera much at all. He doesn't uh, really track, pan, dolly, crane, or other camera movements. Uh, not that I can point out. <laughs> I've counted them. By the time he finished his career in 1962, I would say in maybe 1960, he stopped moving the camera uh, in any respect entirely. Wow. In Tokyo Story, there's about a dozen camera movements, but. There's, there's nothing that you would say, oh, boy, that's terrific. Because <laughs> uh, I should say it's not very flashy. I mean, it's very simple. Yeah. But that low-level camera, and I mm-hmm. always tell, when I used to teach, I always tell my students, remember, it's a low level, not a low angle. Mm-hmm. A low angle looks up. A low level is where you put the camera. And I actually took a trip to, one of my trips to Japan, I went to the studio where Ozu worked, uh, and uh, somebody was shooting an Ozu sort of uh, acolyte, if you will, the most important director of that era, a guy named Yoji Yamada, famous for the It's Tough to Be a Man film series. But he was shooting he was shooting tatami level. And I thought, and then I said, oh, that's how they did it. And then I tell my students, okay, guess how they did it. It takes a long time before they come up with one of the ways it was done in two ways. But the most obvious way was the set was raised. <laughs> it may have been sitting on tatami, but the set itself was a couple of feet off the ground. Yeah, if you, if you if you dig deep enough, you find that these great filmmakers, they have tricks. They have ways around the problem. Yes. And one of the ways could be, uh, hey, like you said, elevate the set itself. Elevate the set. Short tripod. Well, what's also interesting about Ozu's style, right, is that he places the camera often between two subjects to convey a dialogue scene. And and rather than employ, you know, traditional Hollywood over-the-shoulder alternating shots between characters, he puts us at the center of the conversation, and that creates more intimacy, right? I mean, his subjects 
often look directly at the camera and, and thereby they're, I guess, addressing the viewer. Right. When they speak to an adjacent character, they're doing this. I want to read you something by Roger Ebert, who said in his review of this film that an elegantly refined style like Ozu's places people in the foreground. He focuses on the nuances of everyday life. His is the most humanistic of styles, removing the machinery of effects and editing and choosing to touch us with human feeling, not workshop storytelling technique. People spend a lot of time sitting side by side in an Ozu film. He likes two or three characters all in a row. If this causes violations of the eyeline rules, sometimes they don't seem to be looking at one another when they speak, he doesn't care, unquote. That's very true. What he'll do is he'll alternate close-ups, which can be confusing because he does not do over-the-shoulder. And when he alternates close-ups, they're barely facing the direction that they're supposed to be, so to speak. Yeah, it's interesting. They don't quite look at the camera, but they don't quite look at each other either. That's very, very true. He also doesn't have that many close-ups. The only time he has close-ups really is in conversation. And once in a while, he'll have a close-up of somebody's face just looking sort of pensive or sad. And I didn't notice any extreme close-ups whatsoever. So he's not no. he's certainly not going to be like a uh, Sergio Leone or somebody like that. No extreme close-ups, no extreme long shots of his subject. Mm -hmm. Extreme long shots can be of landscape or, or of an alleyway. But his subjects just tend to be in long shot, medium long shot, medium shot. A medium close-up. So it is, very, it is very basic. Yeah, but but for that matter, I mean, he also lingers long on, on a given character, often for the entirety of their speech or, or their lines of dialogue. Uh, you know, when someone says something to another character, it seems that Ozu's camera, it doesn't stray from that subject, right? It doesn't introduce, like we we're saying, a reverse shot showing the opposite character's nonverbal reaction. Right. That's a very astute observation indeed. The person speaks when they finish that you cut to the next person. Mm -hmm. You don't cut back and forth even in, in, in close-ups. It's one person speaks, the other person speaks. That's right. Ebert is right about the people who sit uh, in a line, but when they sit on tatami, they don't sit in a line, but they don't sit at 180 degrees. They don't sit opposite each other. Okay. They sit at 90 degrees. So if people are at the table, you've got one person at one end and the other person at the next angle. In other words, in Western cultures, when you sit at a table, typically you sit across from each other. Right. But in Japanese culture, you sit kind of next to each other at this, as I say, it's 180 versus, versus 90 degrees. So he takes advantage of real Japanese life to shoot his movies. He also takes advantage of what I once called modular space, which in the Japanese home has to do with the very, very famous use of the sliding screens, which can create rooms and change their size. So if you slide a screen door, you then have a different room, but you've made the same room. It's other, In other words, you can move through a house that's partitioned mm -hmm. or you can slide the screens and you can have a house uh, that's bigger than it was the rooms bigger than it was in the first place you know what really struck me on this most recent rewatch is uh, how ozu lets shots breathe if you will by lingering in an empty room or a space before or after characters enter or exit the scene and this 
This would have, I guess, defied the Hollywood rule of invisible editing that I mentioned earlier, in which the cuts between shots were meant to be more seamless, smoother, often quicker. So he he's letting things kind of breathe. And it's not a it's stra- a stranger off-putting kind of effect that is garnered, I would argue. It's 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 really interesting. It it almost feels kind of zen, <laughs> if you, you if know, you will. Well, as you say, I think saying let it breathe is really very is really again very astute, very excellent. So when when somebody exits down a hallway, you don't necessarily cut to them in the next room, or if they have left the scene, you don't necessarily immediately cut to the next scene. You linger on the empty hallway. You linger on the empty alleyway. Yes. You linger on where they were instead of where they're going or where they have gone. So true. You linger where they were. So it's a kind of emptiness, which some people can attribute to his kind of Zen-like attitude. But I also admire how he allows situations and conversational scenes to unfold naturally and, as I said, organically, choosing not to crowd his stories with subplots, turning points, twists, scenes that would detract from the strong focus on emotions and relationships, right? I mean, for example, we aren't shown the grandparents' journeys on the trains. Right. Uh, their actual visits to the Atami baths or Tomi's moment of falling gravely ill. We learn about these things simply through exchanges of dialogue. For that matter, David, you ponder how they named the film Tokyo Story, but the city itself is not really extensively shown in the movie, including its landmarks and maybe famous places. Obviously, the children live in, and I guess it's the outskirts of Tokyo, right? But it's an interesting choice for naming the film. Well, first of all, you have to remember the tour that they take in the car when they, yes. when they first visit they first visit Noriko, uh, and uh, they also mention that if they got separated in Tokyo, they'd never find each other again. Yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. But it's it's Tokyo story in that sense. He has many films called Tokyo something or other. So there is an implication that this new world of Tokyo, this world of bustling, hustling building is is very important compared to the very calm simple world of uh, onomichi where they where the film starts and where the film ends yeah certainly uh, so it's but it's also kind of a day in the life this could be any one of thousands of stories or millions of stories uh, that are taking place but those films are always very elusive i mean what is, what does late spring mean <laughs> or early summer. <laughs> well, it's, it's a very specific time of year, but yeah. Mm-hmm. It is a very specific time of year and it, in, in early summer, but it was and in fact, if you use the if you use even the Japanese titles of the movies, you can just get so confused uh unless you've seen the films like which one is early summer, which one is early spring? There's <laughs> a late autumn. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. you can really you know so then as i say there must be seven or eight films of tokyo especially in the silent era okay he made a lot when when tokyo was really booming yeah and one more uh notable element of ozu's style of course are these pillow shots as they call them these transitions between scenes using seemingly random long shots of outdoor environments things like uh, the, the clouds in the sky shorelines cityscapes other vistas where other filmmakers may use things like, oh, you know, dissolves or fade outs, fade ins, wipes, you know, to transition between sequences. 
Ozu preferred poetically visual still life type shots. Yes. Uh, one thing that's interesting is people don't tend to, to notice is that as the film goes along, you get fewer of those. Mm-hmm. But initially, in the first two thirds of a movie, he will rarely make a direct cut from one place to another that you know. So the second scene in the film uh, is in Tokyo when the son's wife is preparing the house for the visit by the grandparents. Mm-hmm. It takes, as I recall, about seven shots before you get there. So it's like cut, landscape, industrial, bomb, 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 bomb. And it's partly to uh, let the audience uh, know that there is a transition. We're going somewhere else. But it's also to give them a chance to relax, enjoy. I don't think, I mean, they're they're called pillow shots, but I, I'm not sure that's the best term. Yeah, it sounds a little confusing. Yeah, you know. mm-hmm. but just say still life's in between that generally have something to do with the next scene. So when someone says, I'm going to, I'll go, I'll meet you somewhere uh, in the city, then you'll get a few shots of buildings, uh, then a shot of an alleyway, then a shot of an exterior of a restaurant, uh, and then the person will be in the restaurant. It's as if Ozu is bringing you to the location by a series of shots that get you gradually closer. Yes. Even though the geography per se isn't that important. So if I get a shot of a building, I have no idea where that building is in relation to the restaurant. Doesn't matter. However, when you when you see the early pillow shot of the old couple's hometown village and you see like the pillars. Oh yeah. And is it is it the temple or whatever? You are brought back to that image later because he brings that still life shot back and so you immediately know you are back oh, yeah. in their hometown so there are practical reasons for for doing these things too oh, definitely well look at the film's opening before you get to the old couple uh you've got you've got the landscape shots and you've got the sea shots and you've got train shots which ozu's one of his favorite shots is just a moving train another of his favorite shots is some kind of smoke of one kind or another so these these things are important in setting a mood as as well as setting a locale. Absolutely. Yeah, if you if you open the film on the old couple sitting in their home, you might get the idea that they have a traditional home, but you won't get the idea that uh, they're in some small town by the sea. So it's and just when you get the shot of of the son's wife, the the, the older daughter-in-law, you get shots of uh, smokestacks and power lines. Mm. And, and things like that. Yeah, and even clothes hanging on the clothesline. Right? Yeah, now you know that you're in, you're in a different locale. But it does, it does take a while. And it's also the thing you, that you point out about the train trips is I like to say those shots of the cityscape is the train ride. <laughs> because when you get some, after you watch, and then, of course, you watch the woman cleaning the house and arguing with her children, uh, and then all of a sudden, her husband comes in with the old couple. And she says, how was your trip? How was the station? Oh, it was crowded. None of which you saw. <laughs> That's right. We didn't see any of it. They talk about it. But it's as if you are getting a kind of substitution. There's time spent. And time is also the train ride. 
And you know what's fascinating is this movie is over two hours long. It is. At a time where, you know, the typical runtime might be closer to 90 minutes for most most mainstream films. I can't speak for Japanese cinema, but you ask yourself, well, if he would have lingered longer on, let's say, uh, the train journeys or things like that, how much longer would this film have been? And I'm not saying it's too long of a film, like I'm, I'm looking at my watch getting bored. Not at all. It, it goes by relatively quickly to me because it's such a riveting human drama. But by adopting this simpler visual style, as we've been talking about, and and taking a more efficient narrative approach, often with a elliptical narrative, we pay more attention to the riveting human drama that unfolds, and the smallest of gestures, the facial expressions, the seemingly unimportant lines of dialogue that so vividly inform us about these characters. Do you agree? I, I do agree. And if you're going to show a train ride, then you show one that's really, really important. I mean, what's the point of seeing the old woman fall sick? The point is that she has fallen sick. She's gotten off the train. She's now in Osaka uh, at her at the at her horrible son's house, uh, and then and then they return. But the train, the time you do see people on a train, or at least a person on the train, uh, is in the films uh, in the end. My argument is that, I agree with you, uh, is that, yeah, you could have, if let's say in the hands of a different filmmaker, shown her falling ill and therefore evoking more emotions from the audience. But I think to Ozu's credit, and I agree with Ibra here, who said, Tokyo Story lacks sentimental triggers and contrived emotion. It looks away from moments a lesser movie would have exploited. It doesn't want us to force our emotions, but to share its understanding. Now, I'm not going to quote Ebert all day here, but I really was taken by his essay. And I really agree with this this notion, uh, because to me, the entire story is infused from start to finish with, of course, this tone of melancholy. It's a little bit more somber. There, There is emotion tinged to it. But Tokyo Story is not saturated by melodramatic mawkishness to me. It's not. If Ozu really wanted to wring every tear from our cheeks, he would have shown her falling sick. He would have shown her husband weeping, you know, throughout the film or more conflict between, you know, him and his children. No, it's true. That's why a lot of people say, how can Ozu possibly say this is his most melodramatic film when it's hardly melodramatic at all? But Mm -hmm. one does know what he means in that there are confrontations, there are complaints, uh, there are there is more weeping here, even though it's it's kind of hypocritical when when the older daughter, uh, you know, remember, he's got two daughters, the one that lives with him and then the one that has the ooh-la-la beauty salon. The older daughter gets very upset when the mother dies and all that. So there is a lot. Of, and the, the son who's in Osaka, you know, he, he gives the old Confucian idea. No one can be filial to his parents when they're in the grave, that kind of thing. So there is a little bit of that, although we take it as kind of hypocritical. That's unusual for Ozu, but it may be why a lot of Westerners can get at least a little bit inside uh, what is somewhat melodramatic. And you talk about the, its its relationship to make way for tomorrow. There's a melodrama. Yeah, certainly. It's, it's a different a different approach, obviously. I, I remember Orson Welles saying you'd have to be a stone not to be driven to tears by a film like Make Way for Tomorrow. I think that's part of the point. But again, very different approaches. And, and on this larger point, to me, I think Ozu paints these characters not in black and white, but shades of gray. For instance, the father, uh, he's docile, he's congenial, he's seemingly sinless. 
but he's revealed to have been a problematic alcoholic when his children are younger. And his dead son, we learn, also had a drinking problem. So kind of sins of the father visited upon the son here. The eldest daughter, is it Shige? Is that how you pronounce her name? Mm -hmm. Yes. So Shige would seem to be an irredeemable woman who's ungrateful and selfish, but I am a little bit moved when I see her break down in tears a little bit more vehemently than some of the other characters. Now, she quickly rebounds to her selfish ways relatively soon after that, so I don't feel that sympathetic toward her. But she's not painted as a, a outright monster to me. And, you know, she is concerned that her father might succumb to his old drinking ways. So there, it's not like she's an unredeemable character. What I'm getting at here is that You know, the older children are painted as less sympathetic, certainly, but they're not completely unforgivable. Many of the reasons they have for, you know, not being able to spend time with their parents, uh, maybe they're valid to some viewers and and relatively understandable. I get that the youngest son is not the most filial, (laughs) and uh, shame on him for not showing up on time. That's bad. But I have to believe him when he says he didn't get the telegram but yet it's an overall indictment of, come on, you should be more tuned into this. Well, it's kind of uh, ironic and, let's say, satirical, mm-hmm. because the one who should be on time is the one who knows the train schedules. <laughs> and he's closest to their location, right. too. Exactly. So Ozu can be uh, subtly mean uh, when, when he wants to be. Mm. But even, even the character that we find to be the most sympathetic, and who needs no redemption at all, of course, is Noriko. Yes. But remember, at the end, film it's a little bit the subtitles are a little bit off in that when the uh, when she has that nice conversation with the younger daughter the school teacher who still still lives at home when the daughter says oh isn't life disappointing disappointing but right. what what she's actually said right before that uh, is that children are selfish uh, they're kind of mean spoiled selfish uh, and Noriko says, "Yes, that's true. I'm like that." But they don't quite translate that because it's a little bit it's a little bit tricky. Hmm. But in any case, you do get the idea that Noriko is not going to come back to visit her son. You know, her husband, you know, is gone. He's he's dead. Noriko's got a life. It's not the most happy life. Uh, I find her life to be very sad. But she pro- and if she doesn't marry, you know, what's going to happen? We imagine that. She, I mean, I I like to think about this. We imagine that Noriko won't remarry. But if she won't remarry, she's never going to have any kind of pleasant middle-class life. I wanted to ask you this real quickly. So so what's expected of a widow like Noriko at this time in Japanese history? I know nothing about this. So did society expect her to grieve and stay devout and single in memory of her dead husband indefinitely? In which case, Shushiki and Tomi's expressed wish that she remarry and forget her late husband, that would take on greater significance in this story, right? So what's the expectation for a character like her? That's a very important question. In the olden days, or in a traditional way, when you get married, you, the woman, then becomes part of the husband's family. Okay. You abandon your old family to a certain extent. So in some ways, to a great extent, depending. But remember, if Japan, right, the distances in the old days were were difficult. You know, people lived in villages. And so when you became a daughter-in-law, you you were the daughter of the family. Mm. Uh, Even if your husband died, you still tended to live. But in the changing Japan, there was no great reason for Noriko to succumb to that kind of ideology. Okay. The father-in-law seems to be somewhat magnanimous and say, you know, go right ahead uh, and remarry. But I think that the reason she won't remarry isn't because she's filial to this family that's basically a thousand miles away. 
uh, and that she'll never see again. She won't remarry in a subtle way because marriage isn't that great, wasn't that great for her. Ah, gotcha. I want to ask you, too, about the couple's older children. They can read as cold, selfish, disrespectful, quite unsympathetic to Western audiences. Is something lost in the translation, though, so to speak? So that, Is there something we should know about when it comes to Japanese intergenerational dynamics in the early 1950s that would better explain the attitudes and behaviors of these adult children? Because, again, they are not sympathetic. Well, this is why people talk about the one of the themes being the destruction of the traditional Japanese family. The oldest son does have the filial obligation to take care of his parents. If one or the other were to die, especially in, you know, you think that the father dies first, typically, uh, and then it would be the son's duty to take care of his mother. Mm-hmm. And it would be the son's wife, i.e. that daughter-in-law, to take care of her mother-in-law because she's now wedded okay. literally figuratively to the family. So there is a, there are changes and there is the difference between the extended family and the nuclear family. So that is that is very true. But it is also the case that he is a lower we imagine that doctors are well to do. Remember the old couple kind of complains about the lack of economic success of their children. Yes. <laughs> which is kind of funny. It compares <laughs> to this wonderful actor named Eijiro Tono, whose son is the one said, well, my son, you know, threatened to kill me. <laughs> and they, well, at least at least our children don't want to kill us. Yeah. <laughs> which is a very, a very funny kind of, again, a very kind of Ozu moment. But there is a change afoot. There's no question about it. But on the other hand, doctors in Japan uh, aren't well-to-do. He's a family practice doctor. As you see, he gets called away at all times. His wife has two children. And in those days, certainly the mother raised the children. The father was uninvolved. This is, remember, in the early 50s, Japan is struggling to get back on an economic footing. And this is the beginning of the rise of the salary man uh, and the Japanese economic miracle, which would take place a couple of years later. Literally, when Japan's GDP uh, equaled the highest GDP of the pre-war years, that's when they called it a miracle. We are now back on a solid economic footing. But it took men working hard uh, to do that. And even, and of course, even uh, an unmarried woman uh, would have been called an office lady. So Noriko is an office lady. Notice she's an office lady in an international company. Yeah, for Bridgestone or something. I saw a tire. Tires. Right. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. So, and there's a lot of English in Ozu's yeah. movie. That's, again, it's a kind of documentary of, of its years. It's just interesting. That's why I wanted to ask you, putting it in context socioculturally for its time. I, I know we don't have all the time in the world to get into this, but how do you feel about these adult kids? Are they irredeemable or do you do you kind of understand them a little bit here? Oh, I understand them a little bit. They could They could have been nicer. Sure, but uh, they uh, they've gotten they've gotten selfish. Uh, mm. I agree. Yeah, but they're not irredeemable. They're just you know how many people treat their parents that way? Many. And the other the other question is you know maybe it just doesn't age that well. But this concept of they keep hammering it over our heads that this old man's now going to be lonely, lonely, lonely. It almost seems like they're rubbing his face in it. Like what's that all about? Why why do they keep reminding him to his face that he's going to be so lonely? Well, because that's what happens. All his children are going inevitably to marry. But it seems so cruel that they would like keep pointing it out to him. <laughs> they point it out with a smile. Exactly. <laughs> but I, what I love about the ending of Tokyo Story is it's 
It's very subtle in the context of an Ozu movie. Late Spring is about a widowed father who lives with his very filial daughter. And Late Autumn is about, which later, a later movie, is about a mother, a widowed mother who lives with her very filial daughter. And An Autumn Afternoon is a remake of Late Spring. Hmm. And in every case, the, the widowed parent convinces the single daughter who's getting into her late 20s that she has to marry. But when she marries, he will be left alone. That's inevitable. But if people didn't marry, then Japanese life would end. Exactly, right. <laughs> so it's inevitable. That's what it is. But to me, for a, a filmmaker who who is rightfully uh, described as you know subtle and meditative and more nuanced, not so overt, this is very overt. <laughs> it is very overt. But the Japanese audience also knows that that's going to be the case in, in late spring and in autumn afternoon. Mm -hmm. uh, and Ozu does, in a certain way, rub it in. The very, very, very famous final shot of late spring uh, is the father sitting alone uh, in one take, peeling an apple. But at the end of Tokyo Story, as I started to say, remember that he's now a widow and he has a single daughter in the house. That's the school teacher who's now getting to be 22, 23. So you can imagine in a few years that she's going to marry too, uh, and then he'll really be alone. Yeah. Talk about kicking a guy when he's down. But again, I was a little taken aback by how they kind of rub your face in it a little bit. We get it. They really don't. I mean, as I say, they say it with a smile, but everybody everybody knows it, right? It's it, we, we think it's not a nice thing to say, mm -hmm. but we, it's also very hypocritical of us not to say it because it's true. We do have to uh, talk a little bit about themes here and messages or takeaways from Tokyo Story. There are many here. So what are the major ones that stand out to you? Well, as I say, the, the two that, that struggle with each other uh, is the inevitability of change. Yes. Also, the changes of Japanese society uh, in the post-war era, mm -hmm. where it's getting more atomized. Remember, they, they had the tradition of the multi-generational family. But that's the, that's the farming family in which everybody lives together because they have to work together. Uh, and each has a role, and that's how it was. But also, I, I'm reading here that there was the institution of the new civil code in 1948, right, where much of Japan had adopted Western capitalist notions, abandoned older traditions and mores. Uh, that, that factors into this a bit, right? It does. And that civil code, the biggest change that it made was uh, a great deal around the emancipation of women. Okay. Divorce was possible if you were, if you, it, it, there was a tradition we talked about earlier about a widow never remarrying because of the familial bond, mm -hmm. but post-war era that was no longer so strong. But capitalism also brings atomization. Uh, instead of the extended farming family, you have the mother and the father and the children with very specific roles of working and ch child rearing uh, and then raising your children up to be consumers. He, he made a great movie about consumerism and this whole idea. Uh, in a movie called Good Morning. But your point about the, your point about you know the, the disillusion of the traditional Japanese family and it, maybe its value system being replaced by by what by a less sensitive, more frenetic, more modernized, industrialized, westernized culture, and that takes its toll because, uh, for example, just symbolically, if you want to assign significance to this, you don't have to buy into this, but you think about the puttering boat at the beginning, the very opening shot. Uh, it chugs by slowly. And, and it's bookended in the film by the closing shot, where you also have a puttering kind of boat. But 
Shishuki and Tomi and their older, more traditional generation, maybe you can associate them in some ways symbolically with that boat, that slower puttering boat. And that's a vessel that's visually contrasted in the film's opening and closing with what? With a quicker, more urban transport, the train. Right. Seemed fairly clear. It represents newer technology, the preferred conveyance of the younger set and the masses. So to me, it fits thematically then that Tomi would become critically ill after visiting Tokyo and heading home on the train. The fast pace of contemporary post-war Japan and the hectic lifestyles of the younger generations, it's a bit overwhelming to their elders. Again, it's just the fast pace of change and how the older set is going to be left behind or not, not able to transition as easily. That's right. And uh, at the end of at the end of early summer, this time you have a couple that are together, but they also, they have to convince their older daughter to marry. Uh, at the end of early summer, the old couple has moved to the countryside. And that's what you get is a very slow procession of a wedding, fields of grass. Okay. It's a multi-generational household to begin with, but it becomes atomized when they leave. And you know, your point about the train is also very important. Because it's the train that takes the nicest person away from the father-in-law. And that's when he goes home on the train. That's right. Remember what he has given her. If you want to talk about symbolism, remember the gift uh, that uh, Shikichi has given. The watch. The watch. And of course, the watch is the passing of time. Mm Mm-hmm. And we, it seems like we hear, I don't know if it's just diegetic off-screen sound, but it could be the puttering of the boat, or it could be a watch of some sort. But I hear the ticking going by when he's in that scene where he's giving it to her. But I think it's even before he reveals the watch. So it's interesting what he does sound-wise here, too. Yes, that's not something often talked about, is the sound, the sound design. But you're right, the puttering of the boat. Uh, is a very significant sound because he doesn't have to have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even, even the slight whistling. Uh, he also likes to have sounds of, of birds. Uh, so the, the, a, sound, a soundscape is important. We do have to finish the thought on themes, and I think we can agree, right? The generation gap is, is front and center here. It's about how it's usually inevitable that adult children drift away from their parents physically, emotionally, morally, even ethically. So so that's certainly front and center, right? And and again, I'm not getting biblical or religious or anything, but you think about one of the commandments, which is honor thy father and thy mother. Maybe the takeaway here is Tokyo Story is a bit of a cautionary tale, David. Maybe it's, uh, hey, appreciate, spend time with your parents and your family for that matter before time runs out and it's too late to form a stronger connection. Well, that's what Osaka-san says. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't honor your parents. And, of course, it's not just a biblical commandment, but Confucianism, mm. uh, in which is very, very important. But the generation gap, I also think, is inevitable because Ozu concerned himself with that in pre-war movies as well. So I, I don't want to say that it's the uh, post-war westernization that simply has to do with the generation gap, but the generation gap is, as I think you imply, inevitable as well. Yeah, it's crucial. It's a crucial message here. As is, as you said earlier, life is often imperfect and disappointing or unsatisfactory. The comment that Noriko exchanges with Kyoko isn't life disappointing, or when Shukishi remarks, children don't live up to their parents' expectations. And in that same scene, the older couple comments privately about their dissatisfaction with their grandchildren and the fact that their first child was not a more successful doctor. You alluded to this a moment ago, how their eldest daughter's attitude had changed for the worse. So 
life, yeah, is is disappointing. It's kind of a it's kind of a depressing message, but they're being very honest here that the truth is human beings can let you down. That's right. I like when when Tommy says, uh, "Our our daughter used to be such a loving child." <laughs> right. And then, as you said earlier, the, the transitory nature of life, the inevitability of change is certainly a, a major theme. The inability to talk frankly with loved ones about problems. It seems like there's such a huge communication problem in this film. Shukishi, you think of him like, why doesn't he speak up more? Why, does he, why doesn't he like say something that's on his mind? He consistently semi-smiles, he nods, he utters words of acknowledgement. But I discern through context that he's subtly hiding many of his problematic emotions. And there's so much small talk that proceeds between the children and their parents. And, you know, it's very realistic. It's very honest. It, it, it's very believable to me. And that's part of what I, I love about Tokyo Story so much, because there's no speechifying going on here for the most part. There are some greater messages that are expressed, of course, between Noriko and some characters. But for the most part, uh, that's the point. The small talk dominates. The small talk is related also to the kinds of locales mm-hmm. that people are in. They're in they're in homes. They're in domestic spaces. Small talk is life. And that's where melodrama makes a big difference. Melodrama is only the highlights, only the high points. This is like real life. Yeah, it's true. Right. There's no small talk in melodrama. There's only <laughs> intense. Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) Life is small talk, small moments. My favorite scene in the movie uh, is between Noriko and Tommy when Tommy says, what a treat to sleep in my dead son's bed. What the heck? (laughs) Exactly. That's a treat? That seems creepy. It seems, uh, you know, out of place. (laughs) Right. But it's a a reminder. It's a moment. Uh, And remember, all Noriko does is smile. She doesn't say, oh, yes, I'm so glad you're happy. Uh, and your son was a wonderful guy, and uh, I miss him, and uh, you did a great job raising There's none of that. <laughs> none of that kind of thing. She makes no intent. Uh, well, she already feels good. Yeah. But and, and life is ambivalent, and I think that's what we're getting at. You know, we talked about redeeming the characters. Yeah. They're, they're not hard. Life is ambivalent. No, it's true. The great Jean Renoir said, Everybody has their reasons. reasons. Yep, the rules of the game. It's a it's a it's a major takeaway that can apply to everybody's life. This year marks the 70th birthday of Tokyo Story, and birthdays are a time for giving presents. Only it's the fans who continue to receive the gifts when a beloved film marks a milestone year. So, David, what is Tokyo Story's greatest gift to viewers? Uh, a chance to look in on another culture that will strike you as your culture. And you will be, if you're not moved by Tokyo Story, you are missing the point. You may not cry, but you certainly will be moved. It's a film of great uh, insight and subtle emotions, but it really leaves you feeling you've gone on a journey. Tokyo Story is about a journey and you've gone on a journey uh, that makes your life fuller and richer and makes you appreciate the little things in life. Yeah, I think you're so right. That word appreciate is is crucial here, because if you're not moved in some way by the end, maybe thinking about your own relationships with your family, with your parents, with your children, etc., then what's the point? I mean, this should be able to translate this universal message. Yes, and I also think you can identify with the characters, even, you know, you don't mm-hmm. even if you don't say, oh, my life, you know, your life could be perfect. But, you know, just get in there with Noriko. Just think about her life. Just appreciate, you know, how good people can be. In, in a world that's changing, some people remain good and loving. 
It's so true. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And that's a great birthday message you leave us with here. For my part, Tokyo Story bequeaths film lovers with something priceless, and that is proof that a universally translatable story told simply yet masterfully is ageless, it, it, regardless of its creation date. At a time when spectacle, visual extravagance, they're all the rage on screens, large and small, right, David? I mean, uh, when the filmically fantastical and the fabricated, when they trump the true and the real at this time, I, Tokyo Story is such a refreshing departure. It reminds me that the finest expressions of cinema are often those that present plain but honest human stories that convey characters that are real-world relatable, right? This minimalistic approach by Ozu and his skill in arousing deep emotions through contemplative, nuanced, unfussy storytelling, it demonstrates that less can be more and the purity of a simple but powerful tale that is well-articulated by an artist who does what? He restrains indulgent impulses. This can resonate much more effectively than flashy filmmaking. So for me, that's the greatest gift of Tokyo's story. Yes, and it's a film that I think you can watch uh, at least every year. Maybe late spring, early summer. <laughs> All the seasons. All those seasons. A great filmmaker's work takes on resonance, not just by a, the great individual film, but by packaging his films in your mind uh, and making them relate to each other. So you can you can journey through a whole world of Ozu, uh, and Tokyo Story will still stand out, but it also will take on greater significance when you watch the rest of his films. And hopefully it's a great introduction, a gateway drug, if you will, to the world of Ozu. Like for me and all these blind spots that I have to catch up with, now I'm all the more intrigued to visit these other films. Fortunately, they're available. So is there anything you're currently working on, David, that you'd like listeners to know about? Uh, I'm working on another Japanese filmmaker named Kinoshita Keisuke, or Keisuke Kinoshita in Western terms, uh, who was a, a colleague of Ozu at the same studio, mm. and who also very famous for his humanistic way of telling stories. Many of his films are available on Criterion. So once you finish with Ozu on Criterion, uh, check out the films of Keisuke Kinoshita. I can highly recommend them. And in about 18 months, there'll be a book of mine on him. That sounds great. Do you have a title yet? Times of Joy and Sorrow, the films of Keisuke Kinoshita. Oh, that's fantastic. That'll be coming in 2024, you say? Uh, probably maybe 2025 early. Okay, still working on it. Very, very good. Keeping busy and, and staying immersed in the world of Asian cinema. I love it. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate you taking the scenic route to Tokyo Story with us this month, David, and for shedding light on one of the treasures of world cinema it was a great pleasure speaking with you, sir. Thanks again. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you. No question. I could sit and talk with Mr. Desser for days. Seriously, he's that good in his expertise on Ozu and Asian films. I hope you found our chat as informative and fun as I did. We will definitely need to get David back on our podcast sometime soon, rest assured. Time now for Standing Ovations. This is where I give a shout-out to a movie, book, TV program, podcast, or other work that I think would be of interest to classic film lovers just like you and me. For November, my shout-out goes to, of all things, a children's book. And not just any tome for tots, but a new book by former guest and friend of this podcast, Eddie Muller. That's TCM's resident film noir expert. So get this. Eddie has co-authored Kitty Farrell and the Case of the Marshmallow Monkey. This is a storybook with colorful illustrations that uses animal characters to convey a detective mystery and pay homage to the noir classic The Maltese Falcon. 
So in this yarn, our feline protagonist, Kitty, is on the hunt for the missing marshmallow monkey artifact, as well as her kidnapped crime-fighting crony, Mitch the Mutt, and she faces off against baddies Casper Nighthawk and Wilmer the Weasel. <laughs> the fun part about this book is that it not only provides to youngins a first taste of the wonderful world of noir in an age-appropriate way, but it also sneaks in clever references and Easter eggs to noir favorites and classic movies that adults might spot, such as Sly Nods to the Big Sleep and The Postman Always Rings Twice and Casablanca and On the Waterfront. This hardcover makes a great holiday gift for a grandchild, a youngster who's at least four years old, or even a grown-up who's young at heart. Check out Kitty Farrell and the Case of the Marshmallow Monkey, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you get your books. Did you know that Cineversary has its own website? That's right, we actually now have a vanity URL that's easy to remember, which will take you to a freshly designed portal where you can quickly access the latest episode of your favorite podcast, as well as all of our previous installments. Now it's a lot easier to spread the good word about our show to your friends and family. You simply tell them to visit Cineversary.com. Pretty simple, right? That's Cineversary.com. We also have a custom email address just for you. Now, if you ever want to share feedback on our show or offer suggestions for future installments, or maybe you just have a question about Cineversary, send it to us at Podcast at gmail.com. Also, you can really help our show grow by spreading the good word about the Cineversary show to your peeps. Even better, please leave a positive online review and rating, which significantly helps us to get discovered by new listeners. So if you use Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, some of these other services, simply search for the Cineversary page, look for a link that says something like ratings or reviews, click that link, and leave a review and or rating. While you're at it, take a moment to like us on Facebook. We also have a presence on Twitter. Our handle is at CineversaryPod, where you can easily tweet or follow us. And if you want to go an extra step in your support of our show and help keep us ad-free, please consider making a monetary donation to the Cineversary Podcast by visiting tinyurl.com slash donatecineversary. We really appreciate your support. Lastly, have you checked out my Cineverse Group website? Yeah, it's easy to get confused by these similar-sounding names. Cineversary, Cineverse, Tomato, Tomato. But Cineverse is actually the name of my private film discussion group I founded back in 2005 that continues to meet weekly on Zoom. Every week, the Cineverse group watches, researches, and discusses a different movie, and I create a summary write-up, call it a mini-essay if you will, on that movie that gets posted to the Cineverse group blog. So if you want to enjoy reading in-depth content that examines different discussion-worthy motion pictures, including classic Hollywood films, independent features, foreign masterworks, modern movies, and silent-era standouts, then visit cineversegroup.com, simply spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E group.com. Fun fact, every posted article on cineversegroup.com includes a link to a recording of our group discussion of that particular film, with me leading the conversation as moderator. So if you like what I'm doing on a Cineversary podcast, you might also want to give a listen to some of our Cineverse Group recordings, which are podcasts of a different sort. Again, head over to cineversegroup.com where you can check out some interesting text and audio content on a variety of films, not necessarily celebrating a milestone anniversary. Okie dokie, next month we close the book on another year of Cineversary. That went fast. So what's in store for December? Well, it's that time on the calendar, of course, when holiday films rule, right? So it's only fitting that we fet a cherished Yuletide favorite of young and old. Join us in a month as we honor the 40th anniversary of Bob Clark's beloved 
A Christmas Story. Until then, this is your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, and cherish those classic movies. They're not getting older, they are getting better. Believe me. (laughs) Thanks for giving us a listen, and happy Thanksgiving. Gobble, gobble.